Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? It's going 2022, Ed. Here we are. Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Here's to it being distinctly different from mm. the past couple of years as species on this planet. Uh, you know what? That'd be nice. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, I do feel quite hopeful, and one of my resolutions is to go to the cinema more, and I hope that mm. follows through to enable me to do that. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I've had a nice Christmas and New Year, not doing very much, very similar to last year, um, but uh, it was quite nice. Uh, my resolution this year is to listen to more music, because mm. I feel like I was always very good at keeping up on music, and basically until the pandemic because I would listen to music while I was at work and like you know when I used to have a long commute I would listen to like you know I'd pick an album or two to listen to over the course of the week and so I would kind of like keep up on things that way but then since I've been working at home like I just don't find myself listening to Mm. as much new music and if I do listen to music it tends to be like music I'm familiar with or, or is just new to me music so it's like listening to like artists from the past and that's you know noble in its own way but um yeah I, I do kind of feel like uh I've let the side down a little bit in terms of like not trying to keep up with newer music so that's kind of my resolution for this year if I have any is to just try and like like once a week you know pick a new release album that seems interesting to me and uh give it give it a whirl yeah that's a that's a lovely one as well because i think i really like resolutions that are about picking something up rather than giving mm. up something um, yeah because neuroscientifically in that our brains prefer to create new neurons it's much harder to um snap old ones so the idea of doing something more that you enjoy it's a winner in my book Mm, yeah and it's very much like that's just what i've been doing the last couple of years where we've like you know watch 52 films by women watch more films from india like those were two of my um previous resolutions the second of which i was not that successful on because man the films from india are really long and it's very hard to find the time but um yeah like that's always why i try i do try to do that i try and think okay what's a way i can expand my horizons a little bit and you know rather than you know kind of retreat so uh, this is a, a packed episode. This is our kind of best of 2021 episode. So we'll kind of quickly go through some of the news. Uh, I think the first one we want to talk about, um, because you, know, you and I have talked about her work on this podcast a fair bit over the years, and we've recommended her work over the years, but um, it was the news that Lindsay Ellis is a video essayist uh, whose work primarily appears on YouTube and has been kind of involved in doing kind of like media criticism and comedy uh, for much of the last sort of like you know decade or more at this point kind of very feels like a very foundational person on youtube in terms of the evolution of the video essay on that platform um as announced that she was she's quitting youtube and won't be making videos anymore she posted a, a long uh post about this on her uh, patreon uh which emily uh you have read so uh why don't you kind of like give us a, a quick summary i'll give the quickest summary i can because i also think 
sort of how I interpret it is not the point, and I'll come back to that mm-hmm. point. But the quickest summary I can give is that the essay is entitled Walking Away from Omelas, 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 which is a reference to an Ursula K. Le Guin novel where the the um, sort of society of Omelas, and I apologise to any uh, hardcore Gwyn heads uh, if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, it's everyone is um, living this utopia, but everything is based on the continual suffering of this one child. Mm. And it's something that the citizens become aware of at some point. It's kind of like a rite of passage and no one sort of votes to change it because it's it's a really sort of classic Gwyn and a kind of sharp, um, speculative sci-fi about a kind of hardcore utilitarianism basically in terms of a certain amount of pleasure outweighing a certain amount of pain Mm. and I think I don't want to sort of paraphrase her essay because I think so much of what Lindsay Ellis has been through is kind of bad faith or hearsay commentariat and obviously that's Mm. not what you and I are about and what we do here but I would just really emphasise in letting Lindsay explain herself in her own words. But a lot of it is essentially the core of she can't do this anymore. And mm-hmm. the extent to which she's not even going to post on Nebula, which is the kind of co-video essayist owned, generally sort of spearheaded by Patrick H. Willems, I believe, where um, it's kind of a more indie, um, basically cutting out the big bad YouTube aspect of things. Um, but I do not blame her for being completely exhausted. Um, mm. And, you know, <laughs> it's one of those elements where it's like, to uh, to use the CC word, uh, cancel culture is real. But for people who are trying to engage in good faith, you know, the fact that she has to come back to it after her hour and 40 minute long essay called Mask Off, because Lindsay Ellis is not someone who creates a lot of kind of personal YouTube. Like she only inserts herself fully into her essays when it's most necessary. For example, kind of the lawsuit that she was in with a writer of um, sort of prime uh, Twilight ripoff erotic fan fiction, I believe, mm-hmm. um, which I can't believe is a sentence I've said, but here we are. Um I just have so much compassion for her because I think the way that she describes kind of what she's been through and the and that there is no way of ending this cycle because she has done everything possible, you know? And so I would emphasize reading the essay itself, watching Mask Off, watching any of her YouTube content, because hopefully she will still be able to profit from her labour. Not that the pain and trauma that she's been through um, is any way, you know, her work is incredible, but it doesn't warrant that level of sustained attack against her. But it's, I, to me, this feels like a watershed moment because she has been around on YouTube as a platform and kind of, as you said, like pretty much over a decade, but she feels like one of the original nodes of like what we broadly refer to as left tube or, or bread tube. And you know, it's kind of wondering, like, you know, she says she's just going to stop creating content full stop. And maybe, you know, and she's a 
successful novelist in her own right. You know, it's not that she doesn't have things that she can't do, but for someone who was instrumental in kind of really establishing serious but also enjoyable video essay film criticism it's just desperately sad um that what she's done you know that she's been put to this because she had no choice like reading her essay you completely understand why she's doing this um so yeah it's a bummer but like but it shouldn't be it's a bummer for us you know sort of people who really enjoyed her work but at the same time like genie you're free you know mm, mm, yeah uh, yeah a terrible shame but i think also like in the year or so since that whole mask off thing happened like she you know she's only put out like two or three videos one of which her video on love never dies the phantom sequel i thought was very entertaining but like it definitely felt as if maybe you know, her her heart wasn't in it anymore, and like the worst thing for her to do would be like to keep doing it after you know the lover's gone, while still getting constant kind of like abuse from thousands upon thousands of people. Um, yeah, definitely walking away seems the uh, the healthiest thing, even if it's you know a, a dreadful shame that it's come to us. In other news. Another news that's just a total bummer. <laughs> it's, it's not, not a great note, does the the yeah, yeah. Um Though I'm I'm blaming this. This is still 2021 residue, so, so. it's fine. Tw- 2022 unblemished, <laughs> fine. Everything's good still for the moment, um, but we still have we still have uh, stuff due from 2021. Uh, uh, John Mark Vallee passed away at the age of 58. Um, John Mark Vallee is a film director from uh, Quebec who is most notable i think for some of his recent work like um dallas buyers club which is a deeply problematic work but it was very successful as probably the thing that he's most known for um or um his tv work for hbo like um uh big little lies i was trying to remember which show with lies in the title it, it was. was um uh, and, you know his early work things like uh crazy c-r-a-z-y which was kind of one of his his early works that got a lot of attention i remember um, the poster for that being inescapable on various dorm room walls when I was at uni. Yeah, just like a really, I think, talented filmmaker. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed um, several of his movies. I really liked Wild, the movie he did with um, Reese Witherspoon. I think that um, the first season of Big Little Lies was, was pretty good. Um, he just seemed to be a very empathetic filmmaker. He seemed to be someone who always kind of, certainly his more recent work, he really centered women. Um, in his stories in ways that you know were kind of very uh, interesting and obviously very also very spiky you know he didn't necessarily make kind of like soft touchy movies he seemed to really enjoy kind of like digging into difficult characters um, that just happened to be women and I think that he 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 just seemed to be a very talented filmmaker who made work that I found interesting and uh, it's a dreadful shame that he died so suddenly and so young oh I mean, everything seconded. It was, you know, Wild, I think, is my favourite work of his. And mm. it was definitely clear to me that he and Reese Witherspoon were becoming a really exciting director-star um, combination. And mm. for the Big Little Lies kind of cast and crew, 
and team as well to kind of lose Lynn Shelton so suddenly and Jean-Marc Vallée so suddenly as well, I think must be a huge shockwave mm. for them. So, yeah, it's really tough. And then uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, we got the news that Betty White had passed away at the age of 99, just short of her 100th birthday, um, which is everyone's, uh, as a lot of people said, it's just tremendous comic timing. Um, <laughs> you know, especially because literally two days beforehand, I think People magazine had like the big issue, which was Betty White turns 100. <laughs> um, and then she dies like 24 days short of it. Um, just just tremendous, tremendous work. But no, that that was uh, incredibly sad. I think, you know, that was one of those deaths where, you know, just people online, just every every quadrant. <laughs> it's a four-quadrant tragedy where, like, just everyone seemed just so tremendously bummed by it because she was a staple. She had been around for so long. You know, she, she I think someone said that she was the model for television at, like, the World's Fair in the 1930s. <laughs> like, she was literally someone who has been around as long as the medium and has been on television longer than anyone in human history. Um she someone who's like involved in so much iconic stuff obviously the, the mary tyler moore show um uh, golden girls you know kind of iconic for multiple generations thanks to its constant presence on television i know i've certainly seen a fair few episodes of it on dentist televisions mm. over the year it just always seems to be on but um also just like in recent years you know like the whole campaign to get her to host snl her showing up on 30 rock saying she would bury trace shorten <laughs> um she was just like she was just funny funny and everything everything she showed up in and even you know the whole thing to get her on snl which was kind of like a meme and a joke when she hosted snl she was very funny and just like one of those just like funny in their bones people who it was very hard not to love whenever you know she showed up in things 100 percent, just adored her capricorn legend i think everyone can do themselves a favor and honor her by googling the proposal betty white because there is a little behind the scenes uh, i think it may even be an old funny or die um but she is absolutely foul-mouthed and <laughs> completely delightful and playing on her sort of wholesome image but yeah four quadrant tragedy is completely right that that you know and I saw lots of people basically saying, I just didn't, I just thought she lived forever. Just, you know, she's just, mm. around, you know, and I mean, I was just so frustrated because it came, it broke on TMZ and I was like, wait, mm. wait, wait for validation, wait, you know, wait for uh, verification. And then it was like, oh God, fuck you 2021 of all people to take. But yeah, I mean, what a setup, what a punchline. So we will go into our, as I said, uh, you know, it's our end of year episode, end of 2021. We're going to talk about some of our favourite things from the year. We're going to do a countdown of our 10 best kind of piece, pieces of culture each. Before we get to that, we'll just do some uh, honourable mentions. Emily, why don't you kind of like run us through some of your honourable mentions from the year? Lovely. So um, we generally sort of considered these honourable mentions things that weren't necessarily um, the best of, but with things that kind of caught our attention for some reason or another. Um, also, uh, I also include things that might be sort of carried on from other years, so it doesn't feel fair mm. to say the best of 2021 because it didn't necessarily originate in that. So I'll start mm. off with that being um, Ladhood Series 2. Um, I adore Ladhood. I think it's one of the best sitcoms that everyone seems to be sleeping on in the uk which really irritates me but maybe it's going to be one of those hidden gems it is uh from 
the excellent comic mind of Liam Williams, who also made the um, much lauded by me, um, please like. Um, mm-hmm. Madhood is a very, I mean, it's just, it's very funny. Um, but it follows Liam um, in moments of his adulthood being thrown back into his teenage years. And I mean, you and I are just people who are sort of really quite familiar with Yorkshire. Um, and uh, being of sort of similar age around sort of mid 2000s it's quite painful the kind of recollection at times but the second series just built on the sweetness and promise of the first and uh abigail thorns in it quite briefly which is fun um and i i just think it is perfectly like the flavor profile of it is perfect because it's never sentimental it is it leads with being really funny, but it also says a lot about being a, a millennial man and, you know, the person that he's always most willing to take shots at is himself and his, the gap between the recollection of himself and his current image. So Ladhood Series 2, big thumbs up from me. Um, Big Biffa winner, After Love, Joanna Scanlon, um, just wiping the floor with everyone with her performance i don't think it made my best of because i think it's it's a really beautiful film and as a portrait of grief um it's quite something i think really is essentially a vehicle for joanna scanlon which i'm always happy for but it didn't sort of have that fully rounded depth i don't know it's hard to say what it was lacking but what it definitely has is um joanna first and forefront with a really delicate subtle performance and it was the first film I saw back in the cinema Mm. Um, and I think it was actually the only film I saw in the cinema in 2021 now I think about it and I'm really glad it was because it reminded me of how and I've mentioned this before um, in an episode a while back but there is something about seeing a human face (laughs) in on that scale on the silver screen which you know the the tiny mouth twitches and sort of held gaze oh i just love it so and i'm glad that it won really big at the biffers as well because i think everyone in it um, deserves even more uh, in their careers and speaking of sort of homegrown uh i was about to say content which feels dirty in this context but anyway um, Sensor, Chrono, uh, mm. um, Lady Bond's um, debut feature. Again, I think I liked it so much because it shows so much promise. Like, I don't think in and of itself, like, to me, it feels like a short film that's been really extended over a feature. And I'd love to have had a bit more woven into it. But the look and the feel, and the tone of it is so distinctive. I can't wait to see what she does next but Neve Olgar has like a fantastic and very plausible performance in a film that kind of is set in the 80s at the peak of the video nasty VHS um kind of sweeping through the UK and the kind of moral panic around it um to tell a very different more individual specific story so as a character study it's really fun to have something that's so kind of camp and kind of jallow, like there's a lot of Suspiria running through it. Um, 
that I found super enjoyable. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's always such a relief to see people starting and doing new things when we are in an absolute mire of um, franchises <laughs> to find something really unique. Speaking of really unique, uh, Cajillionaire is my final mm. honourable mention. Um, Miranda July's third feature film with the most staggering performance from Evan Rachel Wood. Like Again, it's that thing where I did really like the film as a whole, but I just couldn't take my eyes off of Evan Rachel Wood or stop thinking about her and her character for, yeah, pretty much all the time. Um, and it's a hard one to explain. It's a... Uh, Evan Rachel Wood plays the daughter, the only daughter of two lifelong grifters. Um, and she's instrumental to their kind of scams and they sort of hook up with uh, an optician who gets in on their grift by trying to steal things from people's houses when they deliver, op you know, their prescript optical prescriptions and stuff to them and glasses. So, yeah, what a premise. Um, and it ends up being a wider meditation on particularly about like what american culture really values and you know money can't buy me love um yeah but just worth it for evan rachel wood so that's my honorable mentions ed what about you uh so mine um again i think some of these uh are things that i i really really liked but they just kind of like got they were kind of just on the uh, edges of the top 10, so I thought I would shout them out. Um, uh, first up, the documentary Witches of the Orient, directed by uh, Julien Farrow, which is about the 1964 Olympic gold medal winning uh, women's volleyball team from Japan, who enjoyed a staggering run of success, uh, a still unbroken streak of 258 straight wins, and um, it is... Um, just a, a really fascinating documentary about um, the women themselves you know the, the ones that are still alive now um, are interviewed and they kind of like talk about their past and their experience and how many of them I think 10 of the 12 members of the team all came from like one textile factory who just happened to have a volleyball team <laughs> and they were just really really good and they would just go there and they would practice before shifts um, so it's just kind of about them and, and how part how it was part of their life and the experience of training and things like that. Uh, it, there's also great archival footage of them uh, actually playing and their training and things like that. And then mixed in with that is footage from a anime from the seventies, which I think is called like a t number one attack or something, which is about a volleyball team that goes on to great success on the international stage from Japan, which is kind of inspired by their experiences. So it's very much a documentary about, myth and reality kind of intermingling which it does really well uh throughout but in particular sort of at various points you know when they'll show old footage they'll put they'll intercut it with some of the scenes from the anime that mirror the real reality or they'll just play like footage of them playing and they'll put anime sound effects over it which is always very kind of like fun and um, effective uh and i just thought it was a really fascinating documentary uh it's on movie here in the u.s so i think that's probably where most people can see it. Um, it's definitely worth um, checking out. Uh, next up, I have uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Old, about a beach that makes you old, <laughs> um, which I, I really loved. I thought that it, uh, it was such a strange 
distinctive movie i liked that it was you know kind of like the exact midpoint between like rod serling and michelangelo antonioni in its kind of like aesthetic and its approach i thought it was really moving as a metaphor for i think there's a there's a very strong climate change metaphor in it the notion of like your you know kind of like growing up and seeing the world like change around you and your like not knowing what world you're kind of bringing your children up into and things like that i think that there's a lot of kind of like interesting subtext to it and it's also just like really grisly in places like there's one sequence in a cave which i think anyone who's seen the movie um will wince at just thinking about it's very yeah i I saw it's it's just really fascinating distinctive little movie and yeah I'm, i'm really glad that Shyamalan has really settled into this like nice little groove where every couple of years he makes like a super modestly budgeted and strange movie that does kind of like really well and you know I think he has kind of like found a really interesting groove in his career and I'm excited to see him kind of keep pursuing it. Next up I have The Matrix Resurrections uh, directed by Lana Wachowski the fourth movie in the Matrix series um, or fourth theatrical not counting the Animatrix and things like that um which uh i it may end up in my top 10 for the year i think i need to watch it again but i really really enjoyed it i think it's really fascinating as a meditation on the legacy of the matrix and lan herself trying to kind of come to terms with the way in which imagery from the movie has kind of been appropriated by various different groups in the real world and you know but also trying to wrestle with reboot culture the way i described it i've described it to multiple people who have basically said what the fuck are you talking about how can you like it um which is not an uncommon reaction um is that it's a movie that i think has tremendous love for its characters and tremendous disdain for the system that requires them to come back um and i find that tension really fascinating and i really enjoyed seeing her explore that over the course of uh, a whole movie and also like there's cut there's just like a very nice reunion vibe to it obviously because keanu reeves and karen moss are back um various people who have worked with the wachowskis in different capacities show up in small roles including pretty much the entirety of the cast of sense eight more or less showing up in small roles which is just kind of nice so there was just kind of like I, I don't know there was just something very nice and convivial about it all that i was really drawn to and uh, the final thing I have, like one of my favourite cultural things of the year, was the um, return of the KLF, the um, mm. incredibly um, successful, briefly, uh, dance and electronica group from the sort of late 80s, early 90s, uh, consisting of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti, who sort of famously became the best-selling singles act in the world for a brief period of time and then deleted their catalogue and kind of like disappeared from making music for 20-something years. Um, This year, starting in January, they started putting out some of their records or or compilations of their records and remixes of their old records onto Spotify. And it was just so fun, like, revisiting that music again. Obviously, like, those albums have existed on on youtube all this time because of uploads and things like that so it's not like you haven't been able to hear their music again but it was nice kind of having their music kind of readily available for people to stream for people to discover and you know kind of like being recontextualized because some of their stuff was even best of collections some of the two of them were 
kind of like reordered and re um edited versions of a couple of their albums so it was really nice getting to kind of revisit that music and and think oh yeah this stuff still sounds really fresh it's still really really fun and you know kind of getting to re-experience all of that stuff um again was one of my highlights of the year it, it's it was very much you know we we're talking about listening to music earlier like that they became very much a kind of like i don't know what i want to listen to band so i just immediately just put on you know their stuff on spotify if i couldn't decide what to listen to at night um and yeah they just got so many great songs that it was hugely hugely fun kind of getting to listen to them again okay so we'll go into our respective top tens now uh, this is a mixture of yeah all different kinds of of art and media that we've enjoyed over the course of the year so some films some books some albums etc etc emily why don't you kick us off with your number 10 sure and i also feel like i should kind of uh i realize i haven't done this in any sort of order um mm-hmm. in that i'm building to number one um so i love all of these equally or they struck me as the best in in some way shape or form um so number 10 just for the sake of starting um mm-hmm. let's go for prioritize pleasure uh, the album from uh, rebecca lucy taylor under her moniker self-esteem um her sophomore album i believe under this moniker and it's quite something to be around for the kind of the like it annoys me that so many people are surprised that like the latest pop sensation is from Wakefield um <laughs> because of course like if anyone knows Wakefield there's a lot to sing about and i just think she's incredible and this album means so much to me and so many women like immediately and the kind of live shows that she's been doing and her tour have been this real I wouldn't I wouldn't even say catharsis because that feels like an end this is something like Mm. a rallying cry like it feels like a concentration and a continuation because in a year where we've had the most horrendous cases in in terms of violence against women and the and the continue you know the the complete lack of institutional protection injustice off the scale there's something incredible about having a piece of culture that manages to bring together so many elements of the experience of being a woman alive at this time it it, it is the flippancy it is the frustration of fuckboys but it is also safety and and trying to um you know again prioritize pleasure in a world that continually throws your own demise in you know <laughs> your mortality your will to live your status and achievement I, I i think and you know it's just bangers ed it's also bangers like mm. um and i think the front cover is iconic and i think will last throughout the ages um so yeah i i <laughs> when it came to spotify wrapped it basically said you know already come on and I was like, yeah <laughs> yeah but it did it was like self-esteem absolutely so yeah i feel like yeah I, I i don't bring her up first because she's in 10th place i bring it up because i realize how it feels funny saying it's the best of 2021 like 
it's amazing how music didn't really exist before 2021 and prioritise pleasure. I'm really excited to see how she grows because I think she's in her sort of self-effacing social media way being like, oh, lads, I can't make another album ever again because it's got so many five-star reviews and uh, albums of the year, which it absolutely deserves. But I think she's just going to... To me, this is just her breakthrough. It's not all that she can do. So I'm really excited. What about your number 10, Ed? Uh, well, my number 10, again, you know, I, I know what my number one is and everything else is just kind of being thrown out there because we have to discuss this in linear time, unfortunately. I mean, I could overlay all of our options uh, in the edit, but I think <laughs> no one would enjoy that, uh, other than me, just because um, it'd be a trollish thing to do. But so my number 10, just because we need to discuss it in some order, is a Jubilee by Japanese Breakfast, another album uh, for a bit of symmetry, um, which is the, I think, third album by Japanese Breakfast, who are a kind of indie group um, from the States who have been kind of around for a few years. This was the first time I was really aware of them for the stupidest of reasons, which is that they performed the song um, on... Um, for a video game that was performed as part of E3. <laughs> and so I heard it, I was like, oh, that's that's nice. And then looking at their work and just being really wowed by them. I think their sound is very shimmery, indie pop. It's very kind of like beautiful female vocals. These are basically all of the things that I like in, in music. And um, it's just like all combined together uh, beautifully. Um, I don't really have much more to to say about it other than that you know it's just a, like a wonderful collection of really beautiful songs that uh, i found myself in between repeated listenings to the klf um kind of returning to over the course of the year and yeah it, it was one of those things where i felt just so excited to feel like oh right i'm discovering a new favorite artist um which is like not necessarily something that kind of happens that much nowadays again because of the problem you know just like the last two years i haven't really listened to a lot of new music like this is the first time that i feel like i've been really excited about someone new since like megan the stallion's first kind of mixtape came out two years ago so it was like really really um or three years ago christ yeah so so that for me was like the thing about it. it was a really really good album but also there was just like that real sense of like oh right yes you can still listen to like newer artists and be surprised and excited by them which was something that i maybe had um forgotten about in the last sort of uh, two years what's your number nine speaking of beautiful collections uh the first um i think technically she has published other books but they've been comic monologues so this is the first book in her own um voice based on her own personal experiences delicacy by katie wicks um, mm. a stunning memoir that's put forward in chapters in sort of rough chronological order um, but some of the chapters are barely you know a sentence but it focuses on cake and death or cake and trauma where any time that a really big often quite tragic event happens in Katie Wicks's life a cake seems to appear so each chapter is a different kind of cake and it is a portal into her sort of telling this story and it encompasses again similar to prioritized pleasure so much of the kind of experience of living life as a as a woman particularly millennial um woman and 
it is simultaneously hilarious and desperately sad, which is exactly what I want from culture. I really, I've always loved Katie Wicks's performances and, and, and comedy. She's one of those people that kind of pops up in everything. Like, you definitely recognise her from Ghosts or Not Going Out or, you know, she works really hard and is across lots. I think most recently people probably recognise her from either Ghosts or Staff Let's Flats where she is. Uh, just just the highlights that she has make, makes me laugh. Just She walks into a room and it's funny. Um, mm. But the kind of depth of feeling that she puts across in delicacy is incredible and it's some it's a it's the one book that i've said to people like you have to read this because i think it taps into so many different things and when people are going through awful times you can feel so powerless and ill-equipped to help them but I think Delicacy is one of those books that people can read in an emergency and it talks directly to where they are. Like it's it's a real wisecracking friend in a crisis. So Delicacy by Katie Wicks. What about your number nine, Ed? My number nine is uh, Benedetta, the latest film from Dutch pervert king uh, Paul Verhoeven, um, which was a movie that... Um, I think when it was announced that they was playing at Cannes or even before it was playing at Cannes, you know, like maybe when it was due to play at Cannes in 2020 or whenever it was due to come out, like all the stuff was like Paul Verhoeven's made a lesbian nun movie and just immediately everyone thinking like, yes, the master is back. This is going to be just the horniest movie that anyone's ever seen. And it is that. But um, it was a lot more restrained than necessarily I was expecting based on the constituent parts it's uh, a much um more complicated movie you know it is about a nun in an, a convent who has visions of christ uh quite literal visions of christ that are acted out in the movie and in some cases are very funny and very strange um but who has these visions of christ and believes herself to be visited by god uh it's about uh, and then the skepticism that emerges from some of the people around her most notably the um abbess played by charlotte rampling and um it becomes about the tension that emerges between the uh, her belief that she is some way miraculous the skepticism of the people around her and also the general corruption of the church where by the people who you would think would be interested about a woman being visited by jesus and having visions of god and saying that she's you know kind of carrying god's word onto earth uh choose not to believe her because it threatens their own kind of grip on power and their own corruption uh, so i think it's a really really um exciting and interesting movie about the the point at which cor- corruption and faith uh, intermingle which is perhaps unsurprising when you consider that in addition to his lifelong kind of love of perversion um, Paul Verhoeven is also a biblical scholar someone who has read very deeply about the life and times of Jesus Christ and I think he even wrote a book all about it which I feel like I should read now because I'm sure it's fascinating yeah I, I, and it's just like a hugely entertaining movie it's very wryly funny in places it's kind of beautifully shot it uh yeah it just kind of feels very much like a paul verhoeven movie where it has its kind of like surface level exploitation pleasures as so many of his movies do but it's got a lot kind of uh under the hood or under the habit um Mm -hmm. as it were uh yeah so that's that's benedetta which i 
you know, was very excited to see throughout the whole year because, you know, he doesn't make that many movies anymore. You know, this is his first movie since L, which came out five years ago. And uh, it, he has kind of entered this really interesting phase of his career, I think, particularly when you consider, like, you know, like the last three major theatrical movies he's made, are, you know, kind of Benedetta, L, and Black Book, where he's entering this really interesting part of his career where he is making these movies that are kind of exploitationally exploitation but also like really center interesting complicated female characters in a way that you know you may not have assumed from say um some of his earlier work and, and also it's really funny just to kind of think that you know he's not doing stuff that's that much different from showgirls but the reaction to it critically is very different um so that's also kind of like an interesting thing to consider over the long arc of his career Different kind of show, different kind of girls. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My, uh, my number eight is um, a film that I have already raved about uh, on this here podcast, but it is Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, mm. um, which I think is just such a genre bender um, in that it combines fly-on-the-wall documentary making, but also with a kind of staged structured reality based on actual experience oh it's such a weird little myriad of yeah i can't actually put my finger on it and i really think it's something that you kind of you have to experience but it's loosely based on a group of people who are um essentially in in very dire straits very traumatized people who are patrons of this dive bar in um las vegas but it's actually shot somewhere else it's it's very hard to describe the film without kind of mentioning the caveats but it's also it's just one that you kind of have to watch and i almost feel like the the less you know going in it's the better because it's not a film that you can glean plot from it's more about it's about vibes man it's it's just wall-to-wall vibes but i really love it for that because it's not to say that there isn't character development it's not that you don't care about these people you just have to be prepared that not a lot happens but everything happens um and i just yeah it's it's a really special film i've never seen anything like it and i don't think i'll see anything like it in the future it's um it's pretty unrepeatable cool um my number eight is a book that i know you and i have both read um because i think we talked about it at various points over the year which is uh d's transition baby which i always read in the voice of uh gil Fryzan, um <laughs> by tori peters which is a just like one of the best debut novels i've read ever i think you know it's all about a just trying to remember the exact details here. A trans woman who detransitions and is living as a cis man who finds out that she has impregnated her boss and so is kind of faced with the question of becoming a father and kind of having to live up to this traditional masculine idea of being a father, which obviously is something that she has tried to avoid for um, her life. Uh, and then kind of trying to then uh, kind of get her ex- partner who's still uh you know kind of living as a trans woman to kind of become involved and try and form this family and navigate a a very unconventional way of living 
and I just found it to be you know really entertaining, really funny, really involving, you know, emotionally just like very compelling. I think that um, Tori Peters does a wonderful job of drawing these characters and making them feel very real and kind of like particularly articulating their ideas about traditional notions of sex and gender and identity and things like that. But also it's just like, it's just a rip-roaring good time. It's like just such a, such an entertaining novel. And I was just so enraptured by it. I thought it was just like so great. And, and people had been talking about it you know, before it came out, all the pre-release hype was very, very positive. And just reading it, I was it just absolutely lived up to all of the the plaudits and the early hype, right? I just think it's it's fantastic and I really am looking forward to whatever Toy Peters does next. Oh, hard second for me. Love that book. My number seven um is again, it's not something that is perfect, but it's something that I thought was pretty bloody good and again, unique. Landscapers, uh, which mm. is uh, the TV show, a mini series, I believe the term is, of four one-hour episodes, which again is quite a unique um, format. I've not seen that a huge amount. Uh, featuring um, Queen of Everything, Olivia Coleman, um, David, absolutely worth his salt in anything. Thulis, um, mm. written by uh, Mister Olivia Coleman and directed by Will Sharp, who I am a big fan of series flowers i loved his work in um duty shame who, who uh, i always forget the japanese title because i'm terrible um and it is based on the true crime story um of a couple who killed the wife's parents and carried on buried them in the back garden and carried on as if the parents were still alive for a good 15 years and seemed to spend the majority of the inheritance and life insurance or, or you know the money that they managed to um steal from them um on film memorabilia and the way that this is presented is not like any true crime series you've ever seen it's a very compassionate character study that i think i believe is based on kind of the actual interviews and what the um you know the couple have said themselves um the performances are lovely and again it's one of those series that draws our attention to its construction very heavily mm. and it manages to be have that wider discussion of well what is an unreliable narrator and what is a story and what is testimony because I think we've hit, I think in true crime in particular, we've hit such a saturation of really exploitative, grim, bingeable series. You know, I think we're finally getting to that point where people are like, this is quite icky on podcasts and like makeup and murder uh, videos on YouTube, which is just a bizarre combination of watching someone do their makeup whilst... Um, telling the goriest bits of um the worst days in some people's you know you know these these people are still related to other people who are alive you know they're not they didn't die for our entertainment um it's it's nice to have something that is i guess treats it differently um and treats everyone as a person instead of something sensationalized and 
just the look of it is really stunning. The fourth episode goes off the boil for me. I'll be honest. Mm. And I but it manages to incorporate the film lens through which the um perpetrators see themselves through. So it manages to have this lovely kind of meta narrative you hero in one story, a villain in another. So that's landscapers. What about you, Ed? What's next on your list? Next on my list, my number uh, seven is uh, the podcast QAnon Anonymous, which uh, I started listening to last year, sort of in the lead up to the 2020 election, as um, sort of talk about QAnon was kind of really ha- uh, heating up and various people who kind of monitor the right wing kind of uh, online world would kind of like talking about um, how good this podcast was in terms of like tracking all those things and debunking things. It's very important to specify that this is not pro QAnon. Uh, they are very much uh, about debunking it and exploring it. So I read it. I listened to all of the episodes that were then available up until the election. The election happens, Trump loses, yay. Um, and then I thought, okay, you know, I'll still keep listening to this podcast because like I enjoy these three uh, the three main hosts, uh, Travis Few, Jake Rokotansky, and Julian Field, and their contributors are all really interesting. But surely things will get less crazy now the election's over. Um, and that was not the case. They, in fact, then kind of became, uh, and the podcast remained completely relevant throughout the whole year because they have been tracking the ways in which QAnon has uh, metastasized in some way, but they've also kind of reached out and started investigating other various tendrils of conspiratorial thought that go in all sort of different directions um and it's very entertaining it's also quite bleak in some cases because some of the stories they dig into can be intensely depressing but um i you know it's it's one of the, the one podcast i think that i immediately jump at to listen to every time there's a new episode because i always feel as if i'm going to learn something new about how strange the world is and how scary the world is but also i'll be like ridiculously entertained as they go along they also have one of the best patreons going in terms of just the variety of their content they do you know two episodes a week and they'll kind of like just do a bunch of various different things their most recent episode was one all about nfts and board ape and all of that sort of stuff which was very entertaining because they included it immediately after that guy said that his apes had been stolen <laughs> so it's a lot of uh very entertaining kind of like talk about how much the whole thing is just an an mlm and grifting and all of that little thing so yeah so that show i just think is is absolutely wonderful and just so uh enlightening and entertaining on a on a weekly basis and yeah it's not great for the world that it remains relevant a year later but um it's great content and uh, i i really do enjoy listening to it every week uh, what is your number six, Emily? My number six is uh, Emily Vanderwerf's newsletter. Mm. Um, I've been, as as uh, our audience may be aware, I'm taking a social media break, possibly indefinitely, and I've really enjoyed leaning into old-fashioned newsletters um, and spending more time with a more considered, streamlined Kind of it feels more like a conversation than trying to desperately hear what someone's saying with loads of conversations going around you at a really busy party um mm. and emily's has been such a glorious highlight throughout the year and i think she's really shown how when you are doing your own newsletter you really can make it about anything that you want 
because of course there's a lot of her day job which is uh film and telly criticism but there's also a lot of her own journey transitioning that's been really I don't know just to sort of put that across in the form of a newsletter felt very intimate and very vulnerable um Mm -hmm. and I feel very privileged to part of that and that she's let people in in that way and I think she's still like thinking of Lindsay Ellis and, and you know within that kind of the sort of strata of TV and film criticism and, and how you know she talks about the loop um, and that she's you know in terms of trying to talk about how much you put yourself personally into your response or critique because you know you're not a kind of there's not a default person that anyone can speak from um you are shaped by your own biases and preferences and she writes about that so beautifully in terms of like realizing kind of in hindsight why she was so protective about girls because it spoke to her pre-chum when you know before she transitioned and yeah i just think she's such a wonderful writer I think she can draw you in even if you wouldn't say like oh I'm a film buff or a TV fan she writes like she's talking to you and I really like listening to her yeah I've been a fan of her work ever since her days at the AV club and yeah she is not only you know one of the most uh influential I think critics in terms of the way in which TV is covered now because of the work that she did at the AV club and the, you know, the various writers that she pulled up, but just like one of the best writers there is like, you know, her, her transition, her uh, essay where she kind of like talked about transitioning, which she did as a sort of review of the handmaid's tale is still like one of the best pieces of criticism. I think I've read in the last few years. My number six is the French dispatch directed by Wes Anderson um his latest kind of uh oh so precious <laughs> collection of stories with his familiar crew of 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 actors um i'm being a little glib there because i think the general response to the movie was uh not exactly rapturous like i think it got nice reviews but a lot of people were very much of the kind of like yeah well, it's kind of minor isn't it you know it's not you know his last live action movie was uh Grand Budapest Hotel, which was obviously, you know, kind of like a huge critical commercial success by his standards and got, you know, tons of Oscar nominations and things like this. And this feels like a lot more minor key, you know, it's a, it's a collection, it's essentially a, an anthology collection of all these different stories from a fictional newspaper. And, you know, it kind of feels like it's, you, you know, there's, there, there feels like there must be a slightness to it. But I, I personally found it to be wonderful. I thought it was incredibly funny, incredibly moving in its sort of, celebration of writing and good editors as kind of an overall good for the world and as a celebration of wanting to see the world beyond what you know and beyond your own experiences you know like the running theme without throughout it is that the editor of this this um, small newspaper in france played by bill murray who dies at the start of the movie and then the rest of the movie is kind of like various stories that he edited over the years um his whole thing is like you know he's a guy from kansas who moved to a small town in france because he wanted to you know hire people to write stories and to 
whose editorial style, as you kind of like see in various flashbacks, is essentially just to let people do what they're interested in and then to tell them, you know, his his like bit of advice to everyone is um, try and make it seem like you wrote it that way on purpose, which I think is just such a wonderful bit of guidance for writing in general. Just, you know, like whatever it might be a mistake, you know, just try and make it seem like you meant it that way. And I think the stories themselves are, you know, they're very funny. They're very um, moving in places. You know, the best of them would be the one about Jeffrey Wright's character, which at one point turns into a Tintin cartoon, which is fun to see. But there's just like so much, I think, joy and fun and warmth to it that, you know, it really does feel like someone who has, you know, he has his aesthetic, he has, you know, his style that he uses from film to film, but who I think is still able to generate such empathy for his characters within that. You know, I've never been someone who like really detracts from Wes Anderson. There's some of his movies that don't work for me, but I always feel like um, there is some real humanity within his perfectly um, framed and uh, considered images. And this one for me really felt like one where you could really feel the humanness of it kind of like brimming and trying to break out so um yes that's the french dispatch oh nice so uh number sank five five i tried to segue with some french and it didn't work um (laughs) is uh limbo by ben sharrock um i think it's in that point where it's kind of like the 2020 2021 sort of um you know, the kind of weird midden of where I think because it was completed in 2020 but didn't get shown until 2021. I, I'm letting, I'm allowing it. I'm allowing it for myself. Um, It's a really... All right. So it's going to sound um odd when I sort of logline it as such, but it's a hilarious film about the refugee crisis. Um, It follows a small group of asylum seekers but with sort of one particular um protagonist who we follow who are in the hebrides i think in scotland and um where i am right now hello um and they are awaiting news of their immigration status and it's this tiny remote place and they are is a culture clash in every sense and it manages to be really heartfelt without being like patronizing or it puts people back at the center of the refugee crisis because i think too often particularly in terms of like humanitarian calls for aid it can be weighted on the idea of pity whereas actually limbo does an incredible job of showing that these people are people in um really dire straits but who also have hope and dreams and ambition and that shows that highlights why we should help people because they're not refugees forever it's a temporary state of being that can be ended by other people's acceptance and welcome um it's got some really like fantastically surreal bits in it as well. Um, it's got lovely pace and comic timing, and then does end up being sort of more 
gearing towards, you know, to the heart at the end, but that doesn't detract from actually what how entertaining it is. Yeah, cool. My number five uh, is Get Back, the Peter Jackson eight-hour Beatles documentary, which I've listed on the TV, I guess, because, you know, it, it debuted on Apple. Um, um, but, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say <laughs> what it is. It's, it's in the... I, I, I think my understanding is it's not being submitted for the Oscars, so I guess it's TV. But, yeah, this was um, just a pure delight for me. I, like many people, uh, went through a really big Beatles phase when I was a teenager, you know, really got into pretty much all of their work but um particularly the the later sort of like last four or five albums that they made i i never really liked uh, let it be all that much um but i was always fascinated by the general image of those sessions you know the this image of the band kind of really at each other's throats and kind of really on the verge of falling apart and it being this really kind of like fraught period where the band was kind of like spiraling out of control and i was kind of like really fascinated when it was announced that there was going to be this documentary which consist, uh, consisted of footage that was shot around those sessions. And I thought, you know, going in, it's like, okay, well, it, it sounds like it'd be cool to see the Beatles kind of like in the studio together working, but I'm not sure what new stuff could be really drawn from that. It kind of feels like something that's been really kind of combed over. Um, but it it really felt like totally fresh. The, you know, the quality of the, the footage that they got, which, you know, there was some digital editing to and, you know, all the smooth Ringo stuff. But the quality of the, the footage itself, I think, was uh, was kind of like really immaculate. You know, it really felt like you were there in the studio with them as they're trying to, you know, kind of pull it together for one last album. I think it does a really good job of reframing the traditional image of those sessions that you get from the movie let it be and the general reports around those sessions where it was all animosity where this you say okay it's clear they're all maybe not seeing eye to eye on things but you do get a real sense of the um affection they still have for each other and the way in which they can still kind of like come together and do some good work when necessary it has that amazing moment that went viral of paul kind of just conjuring get at, get back out of nowhere which is kind of amazing and um yeah I, I think you know it's eight hours there's long kind of stretches where not very much happens but i don't know i just found all that stuff really fascinating because you're spending time this really intimate time with these four people who changed all of popular music and you kind of get a decent sense of what they were like together in a way that i don't think anything else has really given us you know there's never been um a documentary on the beatles that really got this close for this long and you know the the benefits of streaming allows for something like this to exist where it's just a colossally long piece of work that really allows you to kind of like wallow in it and get a feeling for for what that whole experience must have been like and then you know it climaxes with a fairly full production um a, a, a depiction of their rooftop concert which previously you know bits of have been seen in let it be but this kind of felt like the pretty much the full thing and there's just something like really uh magical about that um and, and also i think one of the nice things about it and this is true of you know some of the other things i've referenced um it generated some of my favorite writing um critical writing of the year there was a really great piece on uh, New Gorka which was all about um, how the film kind of 
reminded you all that the Beatles were friends above everything else. And so what you kind of got was a real sense of a friendship of people kind of pulling apart because, you know, they don't live together anymore. They all have their own lives and they're still trying to do their thing together. Um, And I thought that there was just so much great writing around Get Back that really made the experience of watching it even, even greater. Well said. I loved it. I cried. My several times. My number four is uh, complete. Uh, you couldn't get further away from Get Back probably than Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, <laughs> which, I mean, it's a tit flapper. Ed, <laughs> need I say more? Mm-hmm. No, I think that that summarizes everything. Great. What's your number four? <laughs> uh, but you know, Barb and Star. That's a that's a that's such a funny movie. Oh, I think, like in a year where we really needed something like escapist, surreal, downright silly, but like just so funny all the way through. Because I think other films I've seen this year that are generally sort of stream released only still have. I think this is the problem where we're kind of saturated with films that are trying to do something a bit different by bringing loads of meaning or like themes into it. So like, look, for example, I really enjoyed Palm Springs, but you know, it's just such a relief to watch something that's really fucking stupid, but hilarious. (laughs) Like where else is Jamie Dornan going to get like a musical number where he's throwing sand around on the beach? playing it completely straight like yeah just uh my number four not not that many laughs in this one it has to be said um it's jane campion's the power of the dog her first feature film in uh 12 years which is crazy to think of obviously she's done top of the lake um which was a big success uh for her but that was on television so this was her first feature film since bright star um but uh, it really didn't feel like she missed a beat. Um, it stars uh, Cody Smith McPhee as a sort of and Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, Kirsten Dunst all doing like really great performances. Uh, Jesse Plemons fulfilling his weird niche of supporting role in Netflix movies from auteurs who struggle to get their movies in theatres. Um, <laughs> following on from Martin Scorsese with the uh, Irishman and Charlie Kaufman with uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And, you know, it's kind of this this Western set in Montana in sort of the early part of the 20th century. It's about this kind of power play between Benedict Cumberbatch's character, who's kind of like a rancher, whose brother is Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons meets and marries Kirsten Dunst. And then it kind of becomes about the question of the seemingly malevolent influence that Cumberbatch's character exudes onto, uh, exerts onto their lives and, you know, kind of like the ways in which that pressure manifests in kind of like different conflicts between the characters um it's you know like like campion is such a wonderful um filmmaker when it comes to creating movies that are really tactile where you can really kind of like feel the tension between people or you can kind of really feel like you're embodying the skins of those characters during certain moments um she's great at depicting sexuality in kind of like various permutations in this movie there there's certain elements of kind of like suppressed longing and lust which play out play out in imp- interesting ways and in very much in keeping with um a lot of her other work 
um and it's just like it's gorgeous to look at you know it's shot in new zealand as all as most of her movies are maybe all of them no in the cut probably isn't in new zealand um but like most of her movies are shot in new zealand and she makes great use of the landscape um to kind of recreate montana and the the other part of the 20th century and yeah it, it is just a totally enrapturing captive captivating um movie about the relationships between people and what happens when those relationships reach a breaking point and yeah i was just like so excited for it because campion's one of those filmmakers who i only got into in her absence you know i hadn't seen any of her movies until sort of three or four years ago despite being broadly aware of her and in that time i just become so excited to see new work from her and this just kind of like felt a total like, like I said, it's not, it totally felt like she hadn't missed a step, that she was just immediately right back into it and being great again. And I really hope we don't have to wait another 12 years for her to make another feature because, um, yeah, we, we should not be deprived of more Jane Campion movies for that long again. Mm-hmm. My number three is one of the most remarkable podcasts I've ever listened to. Sweet Bobby from Tortoise Media. Um Again, it's something that I don't want to talk too much about because I think the less that you know, the more the more sort of vivid and visceral a journey you have listening to it. But what I will <clears> say <throat> is that it's uh, Alexi Mostris and his team have done a really fantastic job of kind of managing to work from the victim's perspective in order to counteract a lot of that kind of true crime nastiness that I was talking about before, where this is not something that seeks to sensationalise, it seeks to convey the shock and the pain of what happened at the time. And I do think that can be done, like listening to, to Sweet Bobby. It is the most horrific event around catfishing is all i'll say um but i remember having to listen to each episode about twice in order to get my head around it and what has happened to the people who lived through it um i mean yeah it's something else but the sensitivity of something that they created whilst that that was kind of unfolding as well in terms of certain aspects of this investigation yeah, it manages to remain really um, steady without being detached. Um, yeah, just it really shows kind of, I think it's the next stage of what podcasts can do in terms of reportage and something that couldn't really be done in any other medium. So that is sweet, Bobby. My number three... Um appropriate enough is something that also i kind of feel like i can't talk too much about because a lot of the fun of it is um in kind of experiencing it and discovering things about it for yourself which is the video game inscription which is a totally normal card game (laughs) in which nothing weird happens um no it's a it's a game that um when various you kind of like podcasts and um sort of uh people who do stuff on youtube that I follow started talking about it you know I initially I thought well, it doesn't really sound like my sort of thing I don't really care about you know sort of deck builders they've never really been like my genre but 
the aesthetic of it seemed really cool. This is kind of really creepy game where you're sat in a cabin playing cards against some sort of malevolent creature. And then what really kind of like sold me, maybe like, I kind of want to see where this goes, was that the game soon opens up and allows you to walk around the cabin and there's elements of kind of escape rooms to it because there's various puzzles you can find around the place that if you solve allow you to kind of progress the story and get various kind of like upgrades that make the actual card battling part of it a little easier and then beyond that kind of like the story goes off in different directions and it kind of turns into different genres at various points and i i just found it to be wildly entertaining the actual deck building card game side of it is really fun and is a really as, as someone who's kind of like a relative novice to that sort of stuff i found it to be fairly intuitive and you know kind of fairly easy to get into uh, I, I i think I, I kind of agree with a lot of people who say that the game falls off after the first the first act shall we say um but i still found like the story of it really engrossing and even when it wasn't doing stuff that i wasn't as into i still wanted to see like where does this end um and i think it's just like a really fun trip kind of like going down that rabbit hole and seeing where the game's going to take you and and also just like at its core it's a super fun game to play like if it was all just kind of like ooh weird kind of stuff that was messing with your mind or whatever um it wouldn't be you know that'd be interesting but you know i wouldn't have probably wouldn't have stuck with it to kind of see where the story went if i didn't fundamentally enjoy playing the game and so yeah so i think inscription it's it's just a really fun interesting video game that does some really cool things with the notion of video games and even if like me you have no interest in card games i think it's it's one that's worth trying for you know to kind of like to see uh, how well it handles that stuff and to see the the, the directions that the story goes hmm. number two possibly my favorite piece of youtube media ever Action Button Reviews Cyberpunk 2077. Mm. Again, don't want to say too much, but we start with the the premise that this is the finale of Action Button Series 1. And I've really enjoyed the epic reviews slash personal nostalgia trips that the first series of Action Button has provided us with. But I thought I knew the meaning of epic and then. So what starts off as a sort of treatise about Cyberpunk 2077, which I admittedly went to looking for a hatchet job. Um, mm -hmm. You know, YouTube does not, surprise, surprise, always appeal to the better angels of my nature. It Just, just set yourself some time aside. I'll just say mm -hmm. that and really just have a blast and i can't wait for action buttons series two i don't know how i don't know how but i'm intrigued to see how we move on from this but it's just again it sounds a little bit like inscription in that it sort of manages to fold in different different kind of formats that I think anyone who's interested in action button and games will also really enjoy. And it just uses YouTube as a platform in a truly innovative way that I found really exciting to kind of, without any sort of extra add-ons or like anything too fancy with the platform, I just appreciate 
the time and effort and vision that's gone into making it. I think it's wicked fun and just is hilarious and makes so many brilliant points. And I just love it. I love that it's something that rewards your attention and isn't something that is rapid or rash. I yeah. I'm still thinking mm-hmm. about it. And and when I put it on my list you watched it, Ed, and I think if you have anything else you'd like to add, please do. Yeah, I, I it was one of those things that kept getting recommended to me because I do watch various videos about video games, you know, of the kind of um video essay genre and you know i always would kind of look at some of them and yeah for a bit more context it's there they're a series by a guy called tim rogers who's a video game journalist who used to work for kotaku and then quit a couple of years ago to, to make these extremely long and detailed video essays and i saw the one for cyberpunk 2077 and i thought oh you know i should check that out at one point especially because uh the length it was listed as just one hour and I had known that some of the, the other, other ones, ones were like, like between two and five hours long. I kind of thought, oh, it seems like this one would be very concise. No, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> That's just the intro. And then it gives you links to other videos that are quite long. Um, but um, when you put it on there, I thought, okay, that seems like the... That's enough of an impetus for me to check this out. Because I do... What I've seen of Tim Rogers' work previously, I have really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the videos he would do for Kotaku. He's got a very um, interesting kind of like delivery he's a very funny writer and i loved what he did with the length of this you know it's so detailed and he makes the detail of it kind of a joke because you know he talks about the research he did into the cyberpunk genre in one of the stories where he talks about all of the different cyberpunk books he read and he kind of is doing it with this affect that i think is very clearly modeled on keanu reeves's delivery delivery as johnny Johnny in that game and there's something really funny about the way in which he will just list like the number of times that Cyberpunk 2077 has been patched um, as part of his kind of like information on when the game was released. There's just something so funny about him very dramatically saying like, you know, when it was released and then patched on, patched on, and then like listing it over or saying the various different kinds of, uh, of sh- the various different editions of Shadowrun he played in, in preparation. Um and there's just something about his use of repetition where it's almost meditative and it's all it's also quite funny and how he will stretch a bit out beyond what you think is possible, such as um, his discussions of what a good gamer chair should be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is, but then using that as a broader metaphor for what Cyberbook 2077 represents within the history of video games and gamer culture and things like that. I, I just think it's it's it is just a really incredible use of the video essay format and as you say of youtube as a platform itself you know offering you the chance to go on branching paths essentially which is just like really just a really great use of medium and for the message that he's telling and yeah it's just really really funny (laughs) it's just just like especially the you know there are various times when he kind of breaks character when he gets really into a topic like there's one bit where you're talking about william gibson's work and he's talking about his more recent books and he just cut his voice just kind of breaks and he says have you read those books they are wild so he, and he kind, kind of, of like talk. talks about recent william gibson stuff and he's like oh wow those books do sound kind of nuts and i like the interplay there between kind of like persona and real person that i think he, he's kind of like 
bringing into it. Um, and it's also, I think, the, the the part one of that where he talks about Keanu Reeves and you know, kind of like the discourse around Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven is maybe some of my favorite writing ever about Keanu Reeves as an actor. Um, I think he does such a great distillation of what Keanu brings to a role, and um, yeah, I, I just think it, it's such you and our kind of like text back and forth about this. I think you described it as being a, such an expansive work, and. I think that is the right word for it. It is just like this really monumental video essay that encompasses so many things. And it really kind of like, it for you know, it, it's about a game that is kind of like bloated and over the top and goes off in all different directions. And I think that gives it enough license to kind of try a bunch of different things. I think it, it succeeds at, you know, kind of everything that it tries uh, in ways that I found really thrilling as someone who, you know, watches a lot of YouTube video essays um, to see one that really does try interesting and novel things with the form. My number two for the year is uh, something altogether more traditional. It is uh, Steven Spielberg's new version of West Side Story, the only film I went to see twice in theatres this year um, because I loved it so much. And then uh, over the Christmas break, I was like, I need to go and take my mum to see this. I'm sure she would enjoy it. And she has recommended it to no less than 10 people. So, uh, you know, if there's an uptick in the box office from sort of central Florida in the weeks ahead, then uh, I think you can you can pretty much put that all on my mum's shoulders. Um, it's just, it's such a beautiful movie. Obviously, West Side Story itself, the show is kind of like this great classic of Broadway. Spielberg is, kind of, is a wonderful director who has never, ever directed a musical. He has kind of like had some musical sequences, most notably the opening of uh, anything, of um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But he's never made a full musical, but it seems like something that he has, you know, like a lot of directors of, of his generation, you know, musicals are kind of a foundational form of cinema for him. And it really does feel as if it's something that he has wanted to do and he was just right, waiting for the right moment to do it. And this feels like him at the height of his powers, you know, visually, I think he brings such a freshness to, you know, very familiar songs, um, but, you know, makes them feel new and alive. I think his version of america one of the kind of the great um songs in the history of broadway um really brings out all the elements of it the, the fun and the humor the energy of it in ways that are really exciting and the cast in it are just so incredible you know like i think i don't know if we talked about it on the show but like Ansel Elgort's kind of bland yeah but tony's a bland character so like that doesn't hurt the film too much but like rachel ziegel is amazing um as Maria, I think she's like it's a re it's a real star making turn. I feel like pretty much every actor in the movie who you haven't heard of before, it it really feels like a star making turn, and that um, Spielberg is doing his damnedest to make all of these people icons the moment they show up on screen. And I just think it's so gorgeously put together. It really does overflow with that kind of like nebulous idea of the magic of cinema. Like you do watch it, and just like every camera move like moved me to tears pretty much like it all felt like oh like this is someone who loves this material lavishing such attention on it and trying to make the best version of all of these songs and of the story imaginable and i think he succeeded wildly you know i, I love the 1961 west side story is is like a movie that i think is absolutely brilliant i think this surpasses it in almost every capacity um and i just think it's uh, a really magical piece of work 
how am I going to follow that with my number one of the year, which is She Dies Tomorrow. Mm, by good one. Amy Sametz. Um, again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. Anyway, it was a bit too much. We're in a, I don't know if you've heard, we're in a weird time. And <laughs> anything that has sort of looked at the pandemic directly, I have zero interest in, and I'm not sure I will ever have interest in. But pieces of culture that are pandemic adjacent, okay, that I can get on board with. So She Dies Tomorrow follows the main character who appears convinced that she is going to die the next day. And as soon as she tells anyone that she knows about this feeling, it appears to be contagious and they catch it and feel it themselves and spread it on. It's possibly the darkest comedy I've ever seen. It's genuinely suspenseful. And it reminds me a lot of uh, Emily Benita favourite trademark the Invitation, Karen Kasama, about sort of the fear of a kind of cultish, tribe-like. Because to me, that was The Invitation is very much rise of fascism in America adjacent um, and manages to not be preachy through pushing all the sort of feelings and desires and fears and concerns through a genre brings out something really evocative and also quite timeless um and she dies tomorrow has these really beautiful wrought but also subtle performances from everyone across the board and it has moments of really dark humor and i think also can just be kind of interpreted in so many different ways but it's clearly saying something and has its own themes, but again, can contain and be the foundation of a lot of different kinds of thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I was I was really taken aback by how, I don't know, kind of flexible, but not, um, it still has a spine, you know, um, and it's a film that I think I will carry with me for a long time and will come back to because even though to me it sums up 2021 it won't only exist within 2021 and I think that's all I ask for something from the best of the year really so she dies tomorrow Amy Sinets. My number one is Days the latest film by Sai Mingling which who is a uh, Malaysian born filmmaker who generally works out of Taiwan uh, who hasn't made a feature film in eight years since his movie Stray Dogs, which, um, funnily enough, was, I think, my number one film of 2013. Um, so perhaps not surprising that when he came back with the new film, I would be all over it. But um, Simon Ling's work is very um, important to me in terms of, like, me really... Uh, getting art house cinema in a lot of ways like i'd watched the independent movies for, for years and years and years before discovering his work but um i don't necessarily think i had ever really connected with works that were so kind of obtuse in their approach to narrative or so abstract in their approach to the narrative where 
you kind of watch it and the characters are going about their lives and they are undeniably like narrative works but the movie doesn't really explain anything to you it's very much just placing the camera there and having you put your own kind of ideas into what they're going through and you know i think there is something so exciting about that to me and his movies were the kind of like the first examples i really saw of movies that really made me understand that approach to filmmaking in a major way and so i was really excited to see his latest movie um because you know he hadn't made a feature film in a long time but also because everything i heard about it kind of made it seem like he was really doubling down on that sort of thing he'd really refined his approach because it is a movie that is like it's two hours long the plus of it could probably be summed up you know kind of like um you know apocryphal hemingway thing you know, you could probably sum it up in six words uh which would be like two men meet have sex depart <laughs> that's kind of all that happens in the movie but um and there's no um there's basically no dialogue in it it's pretty much just like because the, the two characters don't speak the same language so they don't really kind of like talk to each other at all and what, what little there is is unsubtitled so it's really just a movie about the atmosphere that's around from these two men meeting and so like the first half of the movie is just like them separately and you kind of like seeing the, the various um spaces they operate and what their lives are like and then they meet and then they they separate um and i found it to be just like so totally engrossing and the thing about it that was also really interesting uh, is that so much of of Mingling's work is about kind of isolation and loneliness that comes from living in cities you know that's going back all the way to his his first movie rebels of the neon god like that's just his his overwhelming theme and all of his movies kind of feel like responses to the pandemic even though none of them were made like even this one this one was made in like 2019 and didn't come out until this year because of the pandemic but it feels like a response to the pandemic because it's about people living these kind of like isolated little lives who have this moment of connection that feels like truly meaningful to them and feels like this really special thing that occurs between them but is also very transitory and i just like find his approach to filmmaking so exhilarating for that like it does really feel as if his movies have always spoken to a certain spiritual isolation of modern life that then we have all gone through this terrible thing that makes it a concrete thing that we all have had to experience um, that has made his work kind of feel, it's given a meaning to his work, for me at least, that like wasn't as concrete until previously. And it was really great seeing that work kind of um, given its ultimate form in you know, a two-hour movie in which quote-unquote nothing happens. Um, in which there's hardly any dialogue and it's just lots of long lingering shots of people existing in the world um, but I found that to be like I said I just found it so thrilling and exhilarating and considering that I think his work in general he seems yeah I read a book about his um, by Nick Pinkerton about his movie Goodbye Dragon Inn which came out in 2003 this year and it, yeah there's a lot of talk in there about the death of theatrical presentation of cinema particularly about kind of this sort of really difficult art house cinema and it kind of made me like very sad to think about the idea of Tsai Mingling's work like maybe not being theatrically distributed ever again or only being shown in museums um 
so it was really nice to kind of end the year seeing a new film of his admittedly you know streamed on movie movie at home um but kind of being reminded of like but, but kind of being said oh like maybe that's not the worst thing in the world as long as he gets to keep making these movies it kind of doesn't matter where you're seeing them because they're these like wonderful special intimate things that he crafts and put out into the puts out into the world and um yeah i just i was just deeply deeply moved by it and it just really you know in in its own way and it's very diametrically opposed to west side story in a lot of ways it really kind of like reminded me of what a special broad all-encompassing medium uh, cinema is and you know at the end of a, a long stretch where you know i think people have been reconsidering what sort of movies get shown in theaters and what the notion of cinema even is anymore um it was quite nice at the end of the year to kind of get those two dual very different reminders about what cinema can do oh what a lovely note to end this really fantastic mix of a year on yeah, uh, and uh, you and I were talking about this beforehand, but yeah, there's no recommendations this week because uh, you just got like 29 of them. Like all of these things are worth seeing or reading or listening to or playing. Um, it was a difficult year in many ways for many different reasons, but Christ, there was still some great stuff being made and there's still some great works of art out there to, to, to sample. Um, so yeah, so please take this episode as a blanket recommendation for any of these things um though do set aside a lot of time for get back and for action Bushman presents uh the review of uh cyberpunk 2077 they're, they're, hef- they're hefty boys if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player and spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we're back next time with something entirely different until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.